We all want to belong. And to belong, you need to know somebody. Right? You, need to, you need to say hi, you need to shake hands, you need to, to meet someone, and, 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 and then you meet a few more people, and next thing you know, you're in. And I've had some experience with this. I've got a question, and you guys can, can participate. You know, you've got a lot of sleep in you, some coffee that also help you. But how many here, either by show of hands or by shouting out, have ever had a bad first impression? Anyone here ever had a bad first impression? You meant to lead out with your best foot and you stuck it in your mouth instead. And then you fell on your face. I've done that. And, you know, but if the person's nice, the person you're trying to make a good impression with, usually they'll give you like a second impression chance. And, you know, over time, they'll get to know you and, and you're good. And then this conversation happens. Oh, man, I remember when I first met you. Folks, most of the time, what follows that sentence is not a flattering statement. <laughs> when I first met you, you go, no, 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 no. See, because that wasn't who I am. That was only like a fraction, and there's a whole lot more intricate work happening here. It, don't bring it up. Because essentially, we want to be known for who we really are. We want people to know us for who we really are. And... And that's important. And in order to know people and to get known by people, usually a lot of questions get asked. Like, well, how are you? What do you do? What's your favorite color? That one probably isn't as important as it was in grade one. But back in grade one, that was an important question. Um, and today, we're actually going to be talking about some of these questions. Who? Why? What? But in regards to Christ, we're going we're gonna to be looking at why or who why, and what. And these are important. So, if you have your market up books, and be honest now, actually, I'm going to ask one more question before we go. How many of you lost your market up books already? Okay, the ones who are, who are chuckling? I, I know. I know. Well, I have it on the screen, but if you have your Bibles or your market up books, for those of you who still have them, uh, please turn to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. And Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days raise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him follow, or let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For, what, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack there. A lot of questions, a lot of powerful statements happening. And we're going to go through this bit by bit together as a family. Maybe if you don't want to be family, as friends or close acquaintances. But the first question we're going to look at is who? Who is Christ? Now, growing up, the word who, I heard a lot, but usually not in a positive element. You know, it was usually, who did it? And I'd shoot eyes to my brother, and me and him would kind of like look back and forth, and be like, all right, so who's taking the blame for this one? And because my brother was bigger and taller and stronger, who usually ended up being me. But now I'm bigger, taller, and stronger. Unfortunately, we don't live at home, and we don't draw on the walls anymore. You know, it was funny because I used to I used to write like my brother's name thinking that he'd get pinned. But mom caught on. So one day I wrote my own name. <laughs> but who is a powerful question? Who really is uh who are you, who am I? So Jesus asks his disciples, who do others say that I am? You know, he's gone from performing all these miracles, and even while he's tried to get away, in the previous chapters of Mark, he's, he's tried to get away with his disciples, still people find him, crowds gather. Well, now he's in uh, Caesarea Philippi, and he's got a little bit of a long time. It's a small village, so there's not a lot of traffic. It's largely populated by, by Romans and Gentiles and whatnot, so, so he's got some time with them. And he asks them, who, who are people saying that I am? And the disciples respond with, well, John the Baptist. Herod had beheaded John the Baptist, and, and so he was under the impression that this Jesus person who was doing miracles and whatnot might be a, a reincarnation, or not a reincarnation, uh, John the Baptist brought back from the dead. So there was some of that going around. Some people thought he was the fulfillment of uh, an Old Testament prophecy about one coming with the spirit of Elijah. So some people were thinking, well, maybe he's this fulfillment. And others were thinking that maybe he was, uh, you know, Jeremiah or Ezekiel or, or one of the old prophets who had come back. And so a lot of people, and given, like, these are flattering things. You need to understand that for the Jewish people, these were all very flattering titles. You know, John the Baptist, except in King Herod's book, you know, good guy. And, and Elijah was, was a, a revered prophet. Like, these, these, these were very nice things to say, but they missed the mark entirely. Because they were far less, far less than what he actually was. And so, so he turns to his disciples and says, but who do you say I am? See, beforehand, what people were saying about him are the people who have followed him from a distance or have just heard about him. And if someone hears about you or, you know, they have, they, they've seen some of your your work, maybe your performers, you know that they don't really know you, they know of you, but they don't really know you. So he turns to the people who are closest to him, the people who have been who have been living with him, eating with him, following his teachings, who have seen miracles, who have done miracles in his name. And he asks them, who do you say that I am? And, and folks, you know, hopefully your closer friends probably have a better idea of who you are. In this moment, Peter Peter's a thumbs-up moment, guys. Good for Peter. And he opens his mouth, and he says, You are the Christ. Now, I really actually like, 
in the book of Matthew, he, it extends it a little bit, the same account. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, you know, modern day culture, some people think that Jesus' last name was Christ. Jesus Christ. It's not. Jesus Christ, it, it actually should be pronounced Jesus the Christ. It was a title. And it wasn't just a title, it was the title to have. They, like, king, uh, sir, knight, whatever, nothing comes close to what the title of Christ represented. It represented that you are the hope of the world. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one. You are the anointed one of God. And Peter, being a Jewish man, to profess this was a big deal because the Messiah in Jewish culture was the Messiah. <laughs> the hope of the world. And he professes this. He professes, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Peter attributes to Christ deity. You are God. Big statement. Big statement. And Jesus, Jesus says in the account of Matthew, you're right. And this was revealed to you divinely. This was not something you could have figured out on your own, but the Holy Spirit actually helped you figure this out. And we'll see how true that is in a few moments when we get to our next question, but we're still on you. And Jesus strictly tells him not to tell anyone. And this isn't the first time Jesus has strictly told not to tell about things that he's done or things that he said, because there are some things that are going to be revealed later. And kind of like when you're growing up, you ask your parents, why? And then you get older and you're like, oh, because I wasn't ready to quite to grasp, to comprehend what they were not telling me. But Jesus, Jesus is like, you guys know, but don't tell, people just get so now let's come to modern day. Modern day Canada, Montreal, 2015. September 27th, remember the date, it's a big deal. Um, and people today, you ask them, outside of, of, of church, people that you might rub shoulders with, who is Christ? What does our culture say about who Christ is? And there's, there's lots of things going around. A lot of people will say, you know what? It's a good moral teacher. He, he's a good moral teacher. He taught good morals. And, and others will say he was, uh, he was an inspirational religious leader. You know, just inspirational. And, and some will still say, you know, well, he was a historical figure. And you really can't deny that one. Uh, I, I remember one comedian I was listening to. He said, I kind of see Jesus like Elvis. Love is stuff, but his fans freak me out. And so in some ways, you know, culture would even say that Jesus is celebrity-like. And all of these things are flattering in and of themselves. You know, a good moral teacher, a historical figure, a zealous religious leader. Like, those are, those are nice, flattering things, but they miss the mark. They miss the mark because there is so much more to Christ. And C.S. Lewis, one of, my, one of my favorite authors, he said, Jesus didn't actually leave us a whole lot of room with the things that he said. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was telling the truth and he was Lord and Savior. And I think this is true. I do, because if you think about it, uh, 
Yes, he did teach about love, loving your neighbor and, and self-sacrifice, but he also declared himself to be the Son of God. And, I don't know about you, but, it, you know, if I had a teacher who I respected and then he professed in the middle of class that he was God, I would probably drop that class pretty fast. Because he's either delusional. Well, no, he's definitely delusional, actually. But then we have to think, what if he's lying? Well, if Jesus is lying, then he's not a great moral teacher because he actually taught against that. You, you tracking with me, folks? He doesn't actually leave us. With the things that Jesus said, he doesn't leave us any other option than to come to the conclusion that he was lying, that he was crazy, or he was telling the truth and he is actually our Lord and Savior. And so we've talked about what people back then thought about Christ. We've talked about what the scriptures say about Christ. We've talked about what the disciples, who they thought he was. And we've talked about what culture and society thinks about Christ. But I want to leave you guys, before we move on to the next point, just with a question I want you to have at the back of your head, just as we continue talking. And that is, who is Christ to you? Because I can tell you lots of things. I can, I can tell you about what other cultures think. I can tell you what our cultures think. I can tell you what historians have said. But I can't tell you who Christ is to you. So, just think about that question. Who is Christ to you? And we're going to move on to our next question, which is the why. And for any of you who have ever spent a day with a very inquisitive child, you will realize that why can be a never-ending question. Why is the sky blue, Uncle Michael? Because air particles reflect blue light. Why did they do that? I have no idea. Why? Because Mike didn't study that. Why? Because Mike wanted to be a pastor. Why? Because Mike felt that God called him to be a pastor. Why? Because God knows better than I do. Why? Because he's God. Why? He decided that. <laughs> and it can just keep going. The never-ending question. But it's an important question to know because why usually tells us purpose. It tells us direction. It can give us focus. And sometimes it can give us a headache. <laughs> but let's recap for a bit. Peter has just had this divine moment, this divine revelation. And he said, you are the Christ. The Messiah, the Son of God. And, and that's great. And so Jesus begins to talk to them about what his future has in store for him. You know, we all hope what, that our future has good stuff in store for us. Jesus starts to speak very plainly to his disciples that he's going to suffer, he's going to be mocked, ridiculed, he's going to be rejected, and then he's going to get killed, and then he's going to be raised up from the dead. And this, this all is actually in accordance with Isaiah 53, and I'm just going to read you a quick little passage from it so you can see. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. So this whole concept of Christ being a suffering Messiah is not, is not like he drew it out of nowhere. There, there was actually prophecies about this going through. I mean, in Psalms 118, verse 22, we're, we're, we're told that he's going to be the, the stone that was rejected that actually ends up being the foundation. 
And then Peter did something really interesting. Really interesting. Like, I, I like Peter. He just had a thumbs up moment, you know? Thumbs up. Good for you, Peter. Jesus is the Son of God. So after Jesus talks to them plainly, you know, he, had, he didn't use parables. We were told that he spoke plainly to them. Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching in parables. And when it comes to what's going to happen to him, he just tells them very directly, very straightforward. You're going to suffer and die and then be raised from the dead. And Peter, who's just had this great moment, takes Jesus aside. The one who he's just called the Son of God. The Messiah, the one, you know, you are God, immense power, the Messiah. And he starts telling him off. Good job, Peter. You know, like I've argued with God before, but never to his face. I've never actually told God off. And Peter just had this moment, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> but why did Peter, who he just found out, you know, who just acknowledged that his rabbi was actually the Messiah, the promised one. Why, why would he tell him off? Why would he pull him aside and rebuke him? You know? And it's because, in Peter's mind, the Messiah, the Messiah was painted in a very unique light. Peter, as most Jewish men of those days, most Jewish people of those days believed, the Messiah was going to be like a general like a strong military leader, a political figure with charisma who was going to rally up the nation of Israel and they were going to, they were going to overthrow the Romans and they were going to be free, they were going to be strong and proud, they were going to be that established nation of Israel once again. So they, their leader couldn't die. The, the Messiah couldn't be, couldn't be killed and crucified and raised raised from the dead. No, no, he was going to be this strong military leader. He's going to be this, 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 this figurehead that would restore Israel as the chosen people of God. And in fact, this wasn't, this wasn't just something that, uh, that Jesus' disciples struggled with, even after all these things happened where Jesus died on the cross and raised from the dead. This was something that was a struggling point for the early church all over. We read in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And, and I had to contemplate for a little while, like why? Why was this idea that Christ being God couldn't, you know, why, why in people's minds couldn't they see Christ being crucified and rise from the dead and still be Messiah? And I actually came up with a theory. I spent countless minutes on it, guys. Countless minutes. And I call it, because when you create a theory, you get a name it, I call it the Superman theory. Yes, it involves Superman. So, I always also wondered, why is it that in the comic books, people can't figure out that Superman is Clark Kent? Like, he, he does his hair, differently and he takes off his glasses and well he puts on pajamas but still like nothing about the face changes hold on hold on actually no hold on <clears throat> pastor Mike regular Mike in case you missed it pastor Mike regular Mike 
Where did Pastor Mike go? He's here. But the fact of the matter is, is it kind of hit me? Superman is this powerful being who has immense strength and knows no equal and limitless everything. And Clark Kent is shy and unassuming and a bit of a pushover and, and, and really just kind of a wallflower. And, and this carries over a little bit to why people in those days would probably have a hard time seeing Christ as, as a Messiah that would have to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. Because when, when we as humans see people with power, we automatically affiliate strength, that, that they can overcome things, you know, that they're, that, that they're limitless. And it's hard for us to perceive that someone with infinite power and infinite strength, who literally has no equal, would ever let themselves be anything less than that would ever let themselves lose. But that's only how we perceive it, right? Peter, Peter is looking for a Superman Messiah, and Jesus is telling him, well, I'm actually going to be suffered and crucified. And that's something that, that human Clark can do. That, you know, Peter was looking for a Superman Messiah, and Jesus was talking like Clark Kent. And what Peter didn't realize is same Messiah. This humble man who would sacrifice himself for everyone was this powerful Messiah with no equals who will come in glory and power. That's also spoken about. So after, you know, Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus returns to Peter and says, Peter. Actually, he doesn't say Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not putting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I've been called a lot of things in my life. Satan's not one of them, and I'm very grateful for that. Now, I don't want you guys to get things mixed up. Peter was not possessed by the devil at this point. But what he was saying was in line with... Well, really, he was being Satan's spokesperson for the time being. His mind was on the wrong thing. See, because the devil had once tempted Jesus during the desert, right? And offered him the keys to the world. To the world. He bowed down and worshipped him. But it was less than what Christ needed to do. And see, Peter's view of the Messiah was so small in comparison. Because here's what Jesus did come to do. Jesus didn't come to conquer Rome. Jesus came to conquer sin and death and evil. And he didn't come to liberate and restore Israel. He came to liberate and restore creation to what it needed to be. See, Peter's, Peter's focus on why Christ came, why the Messiah had to come, was yay big. It was, it was, and Christ's actual purpose was boundless, endless. You know, there's, there's, another, there's another truth here that I don't want us to miss. And it's another why question. I'm sure you guys have asked this question before. I know I have from time to time. Why doesn't God intervene right now? Why isn't God answering my prayer? Why am I still sick? 
Why is this situation still hard? Why am I still tight on finances? Why isn't God doing what I'm asking? That's a good question to ask, folks. Unfortunately, the answer is pretty much the same. Our scope of view of this life and the things that we are enduring is about you today. We can't even see a minute into the future. We can't even see the repercussions of our actions unless we're there experiencing them. God sees endless outside of time. He sees the impact of what he's doing, even though it might not be what you're doing. The ripples of how God answers and how God chooses to act, we have to trust is so much greater than our view of what we see. Just like how Jesus' destiny as the Messiah was so much greater than what Peter, the Jews, or the Gentiles could see or, or could imagine. It's not an easy answer to accept, but it is the answer that is. So we have to trust that God is beyond our understanding in how he chooses to act. But I tell you this, he always acts. He always acts with our best interests at heart, with the best interests of everyone at heart. Which brings us to our last question, which is what? What will it cost to follow? Because we've established who Christ is, and we've established why he's come. So now let's talk about what will it cost, you know? Whenever, whenever you're out looking for like a new car, do anything really, you, you, you count how much it's going to cost. Do I have enough money in the bank for this? Do I, can I finance this? Can I do like a six-month interest-free payment thing? But now we're going to talk about the cost of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Jesus in his next passage, he's addressing more than what it means to just follow him, but what it means to be a follower of him. And there's a difference. I follow people on Twitter. And half the time I don't even wonder what they're posting. But to be a follower of someone means to be devoutly invested. So I'm just going to read a little bit again. And calling to the crowd, uh, to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, how many of you have heard, you know, someone say, I'm going to pick up my cross and follow Jesus? A few of us. In the churches I grew up in, this was something that was said so often at times, and I had no idea what they meant. I was like, is that why you're wearing it around your neck? But, but what they would, as I, I grew up, what I, what I learned that they were saying is, I'm going to shoulder burdens and I'm going to follow Jesus. But that's actually less than what this is implying. See, the cross, the cross, when Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross. The Jews and the Gentiles of his time, who he was talking to, knew what he was saying. The Roman Christians who Mark was writing to knew what he was saying. The cross was a sign of, of Roman authority. The Romans thought 
intricately how every process of the crucifixion could be a statement of some kind. And carrying your cross was a reminder, not just to the person who was carrying it, but to everyone else that Rome had absolute authority over you. They had conquered you. That your life was over. Rome had all the power. That's usually why they would leave some crucified victims up. It's a reminder. Rome has the power. Your life is not your own. And so what Christ is saying is, if you want to follow me, first, this could lead to death. Secondly, this can cost you everything. If you're going to follow me, you're putting yourself over my absolute authority, my submission. You are forfeiting your life to me. See, salvation, salvation is a free gift that God gives everyone, and I'm so grateful for that, but to follow Christ is a costly thing. But folks, it is the best investment you could ever make. I actually recently, uh, this week actually, had a conversation with someone I know from around Montreal, and, and they told me, I read the Gospels, the New Testament, six times. It's all hippie stuff. It's all flowery. It's all soft and cuddly. And I thought to myself, are, are we reading the same New Testament? Like, I get that there's peace and love in there, there is, but there's also selflessness, self-sacrifice. There's, there's, oh man, I could, I could speak forever, but I won't. See, anything less than everything isn't enough. And, and he goes on even to say, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save him. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can you give in return for your soul? And, and the thing is, is what Jesus was saying was, if you're going to try and self-preserve, if you love what's going on here that much, really you're going you're to lose in the end. But if you're willing to forego yourself, to attach yourself to something higher, to attach yourself to me, even if you lose your life, you will find a new one and it will be greater. You know, we, we talk about our soul. Our soul is, you know, I just feel it in my soul. I know that this is right. And, and at, at times, you know, we look at this verse and go, you mean exchange your soul? Are we talking about like on the bike ride? Oh, Billy, I'll give you my soul for your bike. No way, my bike's worth like at least $12. <laughs> but your soul is actually immeasurable in worth and in value. You've only got one life. You've only got one essence. And it's only for a blimp of time when you really think about it. What can you really gain in exchange for your soul? And, and to be honest, folks, if it's anything earthly, it, you didn't gain anything. You got tricked. But if, if your soul is invested in, in a higher purpose, in Christ, I tell you, the, uh, the return is endless. It's a smart investment. You can quote me on that. And, and so we come to this last verse. This last verse, which is verse 38. And it says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
See, we often like to, we often like to think about Christ as our friend and as our Savior, and He is those things. But we never like to think about Christ as the conqueror and as, as the, the judge who's going to come and purge evil from the world. Why? Because that doesn't feel safe, that doesn't feel soft. It's not flammograph, Jesus. But it's the truth. And I, I often talk to my youth about this. A judge, a judge, and judgment is only a bad thing if there's something bad to be judged for. See, a judge, if you've done nothing wrong, says you're innocent. Woohoo! You get to walk away from an end. Or if you're performing, you know, 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, hey, that's a great score. And so if you're with a judge, if you're on his side, then there's really nothing to fear. But he's saying right here, if you're not, there will come a day where I'm going to come back as this Messiah that the Jews are thinking of. But I'm not just going to come and, and, and conquer Rome. I'm going to come and conquer evil. I'm going to come and, and, and purge the earth. And that's only a scary thought. If you're not with the judge. But folks, that does mean surrendering. That does mean giving our, your life over to Christ. That does mean saying, you know what, I'm going to actually follow something a little bit higher, something a little bit beyond. And so, and so I, have, I have to ask another question. You remember that question I asked you guys to kind of just ponder on while, uh, while we were talking earlier? You know, I want to ask you a second time. Who is Christ to you? I know who he is to me. He's, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. And that was a decision that I made. And, and you know what? It, it can be a difficult decision to make because what you're saying is, is I'm going to give up living just for me. And I'm going to give up doing things my way. And I'm going to give up really my, my claim to my own life. Folks, I'll tell you this. And I can only tell you from personal experience. When I decided who Christ was to me, when I decided he was the Messiah, the Lord and Savior to me, it was the best decision I ever made. It's not been an easy decision to follow him. It is costly, but it's worth it. And so maybe you're here today, and Jesus has always been a good moral teacher, or he's been a historical figure. He's been someone that you're just kind of confused about. You're not, you're not sure... Maybe today, you're thinking, you know what? When I think that a immeasurable God allowed himself to die on the cross for my sins, so that I could have a new life and a new hope and a future, maybe, maybe I don't need to be the ruler of my own life if I've got a God who cares about me like that the value of my eternal life more than his own earthly life. So I'm going to invite everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes. And if you're here today, and you're thinking, yeah, you know what, Pastor Mike, that, that's me. That's me. I, I want to make Jesus more than just a great teacher. I actually want to make him my Lord and Savior. I would just invite you to, to raise your hand I'll say a prayer with you. Thank you. I'm going to raise it, raise it up high. Thank you. 
just going to pray with you guys now. And uh, if you raised your hand, just, just say this prayer with me, even if it's just silently in your own heart. Dear Heavenly Father, you gave your life. You sent your son to give his life to die on the cross for my sins. And I want to accept his gift of forgiveness. Lord, I, I need you. I need you to come and be my Savior. I need you to forgive me. I want to put you first. I want you to be my hope. Lord, I'm willing to follow you.